Welcome to the MedFaber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, friends. Today, we're back with one of our favorite guests, who's the founder of Unpopular Ventures, which invests in early stage technology startups all around the globe. In today's show, we hear what's gone on with Unpopular Ventures since our first episode with our guest last year and what led him to hire multiple partners and build out a syndicate. We take a look at the investment landscape in places like Asia, Africa, Latin America, and hear what he thinks about the high valuations in the private markets today. And of course, we walk through some current names and ideas, including Jeeves, one of his best performing investments. That's not Ask Jeeves, by the way. Be sure to stick around to the end to hear what our guest thinks about some recent news in the venture space about Tiger Global and Sequoia. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Unpopular Ventures, Peter Livingston. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Meb. It's great to be here. I have a long-standing rule that when a guest makes me money. They have an open invite. So you now have an open invite. You've been really hitting the ball out of the park. Congrats. Oh, well, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you saying that. That's cool to hear that I made you money. Which one made you money? I can't say made me money in VC world. It's all ephemeral until it's cash in the bank. So we'll see. It's a lot of, I should say you have a lot of potential. We had you on the show last time, slightly pre-pandemic. I can't remember if you were in Florida, in San Francisco, or where, but you are embracing the real VC digital lifestyle. I want to hear, where do we find you today? Yeah, I guess so. Well, thanks, Matt. Today, I'm in Scotland. And yeah, as I shared briefly, we were chatting before this. My family and I recently became digital nomads, as it's now called, and we got rid of everything we own, everything we have fits in two suitcases. Me, my wife, and our two kids are just floating around the world from one Airbnb to another. And it's been really neat because, one, it's cheaper to live this way than it was to have a small house or apartment in San Francisco. In this current day and age where everybody is working remotely anyway, everyone's on Zoom, there's really no impact to my ability to do my job. And yeah, my wife and I have always loved traveling and seeing the world. So this is a great way to do it. Awesome. Are you in Edinburgh? Where are you? We went through there. Right now, we're at a house out in the countryside. Some of my people, if you see anybody looks like me, you can give them a wink and a nod and say, you got to listen to the Meb Faber show. He might be your long lost relative. <laughs> What's on the to-do list for the rest of 21 and 22? You got any stops you're particularly excited about? 
Well, it's been tough because the whole world is changing constantly depending on who has a COVID surge and who doesn't and what laws are changing and restrictions. And so we really had to take it one step at a time. We've made a lot of plans along the way that we then had to cancel because the dynamics of the world changed. Right now, we're going to be in the UK and Ireland for the next month, and then we'll just see where the wind blows next. We'd like to hear you just briefly remind the listeners what you do, and then within that story, walk us forward the developments over the last couple of years. I know you've added some people, you've continued to expand, you have some of my favorite deal flow of anyone out there. I've invested, I think, over 20 companies along with you, so kudos, but Walk us through, like it's a little different setup than it was a little over a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. Yeah, happy to share. Well, well, first of all, I mean, Meb, it's such an honor that you'd say that. So thank you so much for your kind words and also all your support with us. It's been really great to have you as back with us. Yep, don't blow it. <laughs> I'll do my best. Not to. <laughs> yeah, not gonna so what I do, my background, pretty much my whole career has been in startups, first working in startups. And then for a long period of time, I was a professional angel investor investing my own money. And then over the last few years, I've been both a syndicate lead and more recently a venture fund lead on AngelList. And what that means is look for startups to invest in. Before, it used to be me just putting tiny amounts of my own money into startups that I thought were good. For the first couple of years of leading my firm called Unpopular Ventures, we did syndicates where basically we would still find companies that I wanted to invest in. I'd write about why I thought they were good investments, share them with my syndicate backers, and they could individually decide if they want to invest on individual deals. And we would pool all that money together to invest larger amounts of money in startups. And it has now evolved further to where we have a dedicated fund called a rolling fund. It's a new innovation on AngelList where we have these quarterly subscription venture funds that we raise from our backers and can deploy. And in contrast to investing on a deal-by-deal basis where we invite people and and they get to decide. We still do that, but we also have a fund that we invest from. So so we are, I guess, technically a venture capital firm now. And the other big development is it's not just me. Yeah, you've been adding some headcount in like the most modern way possible. You guys are pretty spread out all over the place. It's really been remarkable. I found them through the Angelus Network. The first partner that joined me was Thibaut. I actually met him because he was an LP, an investor on Angelus who invested with us a lot. Both picked a lot of our best investments, referred a number of our best investments, and then just started leading them with us. So it was an obvious next step to join forces. And then we brought on three additional partners that have really been fantastic. Chris and Deck in Europe, and then Sergey, who's out in Palo Alto. And Thibaut is in Dubai, and I guess I'm all over, originally from the US. So how would you describe, like, is the majority of their role sourcing? Is it kind of like scouting, or is it like managing the operations of the syndicate? Is it just vary by person? Like, how's it all set up? Yeah. So I count all of them as partners with us. They all have the authority and agency to find and lead investments with us. I get input on everything. But one of the things that I've found in my journey as an angel, so the background on me is I've been in startups since 2007 as an operator. And then I've been an angel investor since technically 2012. So I've been around this for a while. I've had a few wins. And I've also made a ton of mistakes. But one of the most important things that I've... Well, there are a couple really important things that I've learned. The first is when you're investing at the early stage, there's a quote that I'll steal from Bradfeld. And what he said is that in angel investing, it pays to be promiscuous. And what that means is that the very best startups end up being so valuable that they can potentially return your investment so many times over. When the public stock market, a 10x would be considered good. 
But some of these angel investments can return 1,000x or even 10,000x. And if you can get in on one of those, it almost doesn't matter how many investments you made. For an individual or firm, it's not possible to make more than a few hundred investments a year. And if you can just try to get in on one of these that returns 1,000x or more, that makes your whole fund. You have returns the whole fund many times over. Anyway, in this game where the potential returns are so huge, in general, it pays to build a bigger portfolio of investments because you don't know which ones those are going to be. And the more investments you make, the higher chance you have of getting one of those mega home loans. What do you think that number needs to be? Let's say you're a syndicate investor or LP on the inside and you're saying, all right, I'm going to start allocating to Unpopular Ventures and others. What do you think that number needs to be to be sort of like a reasonable amount? I got a range in my head, but let's hear what you think. It's a very good question. It probably depends on the individual and kind of the access that they have and or skill that they have. Maybe a random person who has no exposure to this, if they were to just start throwing money into tons of random things, even if they invest in a thousand companies, they might not hit one of these. But if you are tapped into this deal flow and you're seeing high quality startups on a regular basis, I would guess that at least in my experience, it's at least about one in a hundred returns, at least a hundred X or more. So you need to get essentially a hundred shots. I believe that if you can build a portfolio of a hundred investments, that's a good amount. Yeah. I'm right there with you. There's no right answer on this. I think there is a right answer, which is more, more is the better. But as a quant who talks a lot about breadth, the risk of missing a big winner and the impact on that portfolio versus that dilution of having too many bets, but still getting the winner is a huge difference in the outcome. So said differently, take more shots, listeners, because if you do 10 or 20 and you miss the big one or the big two, you're torpedoed the entire portfolio. And if you invest in 100 and get it, or even if you invest in 200 and get it, it's still going to be better than 10 or 20 missing it. Anyway, I don't know how consensus that view that you and I hold is, but I think it's the right approach and it applies to public markets as well. But anyway, okay, so keep going. One of my biggest learnings in my journey as an angel was in the beginning, I tried to be very selective. I would see and hear about a lot of opportunities and I tried to do some fraction of those for maybe bigger and more concentrated amounts. And I did well. My first personal angel fund ended up being like, it's tracking at about an 8X fund right now, which is certainly great. I feel very fortunate that I did well with that. But the crazy thing is, if I had just sprayed and prayed, as they called it, and invested in every smart friend, every classmate that I knew, I would have done even better. So a couple of big misses of mine were DoorDash was founded by two classmates of mine from Stanford Business School. And I heard at the time, I was co-president of the Venture Capital Club with them at Stanford Business School and, and um, knew them very well. They were good friends. I was chatting with one of them one day and he said, hey, we're doing something in food delivery. And my initial thought was food delivery, it's a low margin business, not very sexy, not even worth looking at. And gosh, if only I had just said, I'm going to invest in every smart friend that I know that's doing anything, even if it sounds stupid, that one investment it would have been a thousand X. I did something like a hundred investments in my first personal fund. And that would have been another 10X right there. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel better, we tried to order DoorDash today and it was down. So... <laughs> So we had to go through Uber Eats. I mean, look, that's a perfect example. And I think now, listeners, the takeaway is not to spray and pray and just invest in everything. I think the takeaway is you still want to invest in companies that can scale. It doesn't mean it has to be totally audacious, like we're going to 
invent teleporting to Mars, it could be a really boring industry, which you talk a fair amount about, where you're just in a different country converting yellow pen and pad to software, and that's a $100 million opportunity. So I think having more breadth is better. The way we think about it is we try to invest in every credible deal, every single one where it's something that the founders have great backgrounds or are highly credible and or they have compelling traction or other smart people are betting on them as well. Like The bar is high, but it's also pretty open where if it hits that bar, we always do it. We don't overthink it. Every credible deal is the way we frame it. I like that. I might steal that phrase, every credible deal. Because it's funny, if I go back and I was talking to Jason Calcanis about this yesterday, and I said, I wish I could go back in time and write down having invested in over 300 companies at the time of my investment, once it passed the credible deal threshold, meaning this checks the boxes of what I would like, I'm going to invest, then rate it one to 10 on how confident I was that this was going to be a home run. I'm guessing it wouldn't have the correlation that I would expect, but I don't know. I think overall it would because of all the deals that didn't meet the threshold probably would underperform, but I could be wrong on that. How accurate, and now that you look back, how many investments have you guys done? 200? We've done about 160 now. Okay. Well, the pace is accelerating as I've seen. What's your take on that? If you could go back and you now can review the big winners, or at least the ones that are starting to have the traction, do you think there's a pretty high correlation to when you made the bet and where they are today? Or is it a scatter plot or what? Yes and no. So one of our kind of tracking to be best investments so far had a lot of things that made it very credible. The founder had prior successful startup experience. He had some traction and it was coming out of Y Combinator. The idea seemed potentially big. So it had like enough to it where it's like, yes, this looks like a deal worth doing. But it was not obvious at all that this would be our breakaway winner. And the company I'm referring to is Jeeves. I think you are in that one with me. Yeah, I am. Tell the listeners what it is. It's a search engine from the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So it started as, as kind of a corporate credit card for international startups. So similar to Brex or Ramp in the US, they started doing something similar for startups that are outside the US. And, and what they quickly discovered is that it was a problem for US startups to begin with, but it was a much bigger problem for startups outside the US. Because in the US, there are a lot of substitutes, other types of credit cards, other financial services offerings. But in Latin America or a lot of Europe and elsewhere, there's nothing. So it was really very valuable. They launched that and they've actually expanded across more things. Now they do uh, revenue financing for startups and they're uh, full expense management and what they're now pitching themselves as they are aiming to be the global business bank. And uh, we're very lucky we came in very early. We're the first investor in them. We're just on a $10 million valuation. Put in 200K there, another 300K on, and then on a $13 million valuation. And they have just turned into a rocket ship. They last raised on 500 million and it's continuing to shoot upwards. Do you think that was obvious from the get-go? Or you're just like, yeah, this is a cool one and this seems like a good idea? Now it appears obvious. It's like, gosh, if only we had put even more into it. Like, But no, if I'm being honest, it was not obviously better than any other investment we made around the same time. And it's evidenced by the fact that the VCs were not all over it at the time. They got some other VCs in, but it was not a hot deal. You talk about this in the first episode where I asked you something along these similar lines. Obviously, it's a nod to your naming in the syndicate that a lot of the best ideas were not these like 20 VCs clamoring over each other, but in reality, like people weren't that interested in it. 
No, it's exactly right. Over and over again, I, I keep finding that many of my best investments are the ones that either others don't want to do or it's hard to get others to do. And yeah, it keeps proving true. How much has that changed in the last two years now? It seems like the VC as an asset class, angel investing, valuations. Talk to us a little bit about what, how the world's changed in the last two years. Like, Are you getting sharp elbows in these deals now? Or are you still just finding yourself in a little dark corner of the room where there's not as many people? Well, we're actually finding it more true than ever right now, where it's very, very hard to even get into the high signal deals. So there's, I kind of talked about this kind of bar that we have that we kind of think of as this makes a credible investment. And most mainstream VCs have a much higher bar of what they want to see, a certain amount of traction and unit economics and, and a lot of things happening in it before kind of the wave of VCs come in. And what we found is that once it satisfies the threshold that a lot of VCs would want to do it, then we can't even get in anymore. And there are a lot of dynamics at play. So one is that the VCs funds are bigger than ever. And so to deploy all that money and return their fund at the multiple they want to, they have to take as much ownership as they can. So when an Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or, or Benchmark or whatever want, comes in and wants to do a deal, usually they want to take the whole thing. There's no value to them and having all these other angels in or smaller VCs, they want to do the whole thing. And even if they don't want to do the whole thing, as soon as somebody, a brand name VC comes in like that, everybody else wants to invest too. And when that's the case, we're nobody special. I mean, we'd like to think we're decent investors. We have good judgment. We can find good opportunities and produce good investment returns. But beyond that, there's not that much that's special about us compared to a lot of the other people that angel invest out there. And so what often happens is once one of those famous VCs comes in, they then invite all their portfolio CEOs to invest as angels or celebrities to come in. And the founder has a choice between people like that, you know, CEOs of other companies that could be their customers or advisors or people that can get them a lot of media and press they're always going to choose them over us. And so because of this, because these premier rounds are so competitive and we can't even invest, it's more important than ever that we find companies before they hit that stage. What's been challenging about that though, is that a big part of our business is the syndicate where you know we have our fund and we invest from that, but we're able to invest a lot more money when we can convince all of our syndicate followers to invest with us in a deal. And a lot of the syndicate followers really care about there being these brand name VCs in the deal. And so the funny tension is that for those deals with the famous VCs, we either can't get an allocation or if we do, it's going to be too tight or it's going to be so small that we're going to oversubscribe it 10 times over by all the syndicate backers and can't fit everyone in. Or we do these ones that the unpopular deals and it's much harder to compel people to invest in those and raise meaningful mass money to invest. So it's been a constant tension for us where we get more money when we do the brand name VC deals, but we get much more allocation and we also think we're getting better deals at better prices with more potential when we invest while we're still unpopular. I mean, my experience mirrors yours, I mean, almost to a T. I look back and all the deals that I look at where I was like, wow, this looks awesome. This is really interesting. Very rarely do I see the ones where it's like, it's a super popular idea or cap table end up being the big winners. That's fascinating to me. It's like, I wonder how hard it is to retrain the brain as an investor. Say, look, think for yourself don't make a decision just based on Tiger Global or Sequoia or whomever being on the cap table. That's probably hard, particularly in the beginning, harder for people to not want the sort of country club safety of there's a lot of other people that have, have blessed it. For sure. I mean, it's enticing for a lot of people that if they're considering gazillion deals on a platform such as AngelList, 
and they see one where maybe they can invest alongside Andreessen Horowitz and they know, wow, Andreessen Horowitz's returns have been fantastic over their life. And gosh, I get to get on, on this deal and on average produce returns like that. Or I can take a risk on this no-name one that may flop. It makes total sense why most angel investors and LPs and syndicates prefer to invest with the safety of these famous VCs. So you guys have sort of ramped up the action, but what percentage of these deals do you do are outside the U.S.? Because you guys seem to have a pretty high percentage of non-U.S. domiciled or focused deals. Yeah, that's right. So this is kind of an unpopular thesis, though it's becoming more popular recently. But the consensus belief for a long time was that all the great companies were founded in the Bay Area and that, that you should only invest or start companies in the Bay Area. And in fact, most of the VCs were based in the Bay Area and they only wanted to invest within driving distance or a bike ride from where they were. And for a long time, that was actually kind of true. All the really valuable companies were in the Bay Area with a few exceptions. And what I and my team believe is that that's starting to shift as everything is more global, as everyone has more access to opportunities through the internet, as people work remotely and they can reach talent and capital and, and all these things from anywhere. We think that this whole thing is going to shift where more great opportunities are going to be founded and built outside the barrier. And on top of that, how many people are in the world now? 8 billion or 7 billion? There's 7 billion people out there that aren't in the Bay Area, and particularly outside the US, that have needs and want to spend money on great products. And they're great founders too, that are maybe even either starting there or coming from the Bay Area, trained in Silicon Valley startup mentality to go and found a company there. And so anyway, we just believe that there's so much potential to build really valuable companies outside. And still today, especially for the last couple of years, we were finding what we thought were fantastic investment opportunities that were undervalued with great founders, great potential, incredible traction outside the US. And so we invest a lot in Latin America. A lot of our Latin American companies have been doing incredibly. We have a few in Africa. We've done some in India and Pakistan and Southeast Asia. A lot of those are doing great. The challenge, though, is that this is becoming more of a consensus view. For the last couple of years, we invested outside the US. Very few others were doing it. We've done great with it. People see that we and others are making a lot of money, at least on paper in this. And so more people are coming in. But even so, it's still a little bit scary and a little bit off the beaten path for most VCs. But yeah, so anyway, we do invest globally. We invest in Latin America, Africa, throughout Asia. We don't really do China. We just don't have an edge there. And then we've started to do more in Europe. So a lot of our partners are in Europe as well. What's sort of like the breakdown, do you think, as far as percent of the world? Is it like three quarters US, 10% Latin America, 10%? I think it's about 40% US and the rest outside. Wow. And then what are the main other pie pieces? So Latin America has been big. I think that I got access to a lot of great Latin American stuff because I lived in Miami for five years and invested in some companies in Latin America then. And for a while, apparently I was one of the only angel investors from the US that would invest in Latin America. So everybody comes to me. So about to see a lot of good stuff there and, and have done well there. So yeah, I think Latin America is probably like 15% of what we've done. We've done, I think, four companies in Pakistan, probably four or five in India, I think three or four in Southeast Asia. We've done a lot in Europe lately. I don't know the exact metrics right now, but I would guess it's about 40, 50% US. Part of this, is, I'm sure, is aided by the rest of your team, but how hard is it to be the boots on the ground, sourcing these deals, validating these deals, particularly in a remote world, all over the place. Like, is that getting easier? Is it there's some particular funnels that spit out into whether it's accelerators or just 
friends and contacts? Like, how do you how do you come across all these early stage startups all over the globe? So the number one thing is we don't go super far off the beaten path. They being totally honest, most of the founders that we backed that are operating outside the U.S. have a clear existing track record of success that's relevant to what they're doing. Either they've been in startups, they've been had a leadership role in a successful company. We can reference, check them with people that we can get to easily. And or there are some other investors in that either that are local or that knew them that can kind of provide that extra reference. We never go and invest in some random guy across the world that we've never met and have no connection to and maybe has no traction. That is very risky. And I think that would feel risky to a lot of people. An example is, is Jeeves. Uh, we'll go back to that one. So th- this is a, a company that it's technically a US company, but it's serving a global customer base, initially focused on Latin America, but now are in Europe and Canada and, and all over the place. They're in 24 countries on three continents now. In this case, the founder was a, a business school classmate of mine. I knew him really well. He had founded a successful company before, and now he was doing this. So there was no need necessarily to diligence the market opportunity on the ground in Latin America where they started. It was that, hey, this is a smart guy who I know has had success in the past. Another one is a company we invested in Pakistan called Byte. It's a food delivery company. The founder there had literally run Uber's business in Pakistan before that. And we were able to reference check him. And there were also good VCs in. And once again, very credible founder who we think is very likely to succeed and has enough of a track record of resume that it actually felt like a relatively safe bet, even though it was across the world in Pakistan where I've never even been to. Yeah, you continue to see a lot of interesting startups in Pakistan and India. You mentioned Latin America. I mean, it doesn't seem like, and you can comment on this, what is the state of the valuations around the world? It seems like I see some of these in the US now and I'm like, did that person really just justify that at 80 times sales? Because I don't know if I've ever seen that before. It seems like the rest of the world is still more reasonable. Is that the case? Like, Talk to us a little bit about the lay of the land on the valuations going on. Evaluations are so tricky. And it's another thing where there's often no right answer. Particularly in the venture world, they're both in the US and outside. There are cases of companies being valued outrageously that went totally bust and never lived up to their valuations. And there are other cases of companies having outrageous valuations and growing into that and surpassing it many times over. One example I like to give is that for most of Airbnb's life, it was valued at 200 times revenue. And clearly that worked out just fine. It grew into its potential. Now, to your question specifically of valuations in the US versus valuations, say, in Latin America or emerging markets around the world, the challenge is weighing what is the relative potential. So historically, US companies grew into much larger valuations. And so if you see a company that's growing super fast and has that very high potential that it could be worth $100 billion or more, and it seems very likely to do it, that maybe you don't even value it on a multiple of current sales. It's that, hey, look, we think there's a 10% chance that it becomes that $100 billion company. Therefore, anything under a $10 billion valuation is reasonable, even if that is many hundreds of times sales. And of course, historically, the exit valuations in Latin America or other emerging markets were much lower than what they were in the US. I don't think there are any companies in Latin America that are worth $100 billion. I could be wrong. I'm not an expert in this. But therefore, valuation there should be lower. Having said that, if you do value companies on current metrics, a delivery company in the US versus a delivery company in Latin America, the multiple of revenue that you tend to get in a place like Latin America is generally lower. Now, what's weird is that it seems like I believe 
that some of these companies that are now getting started outside the U.S. are going to end up being worth more than their U.S. comparables. One example of this is Nubank down in Brazil, which I think was last valued at about $40 billion. It's just still growing crazy fast. And I think it was Warren Buffett that was in on it at $30 billion. If Warren Buffett doesn't invest at a $30 billion valuation if he thinks it's only going to go to $40 or $50 billion. The bet there is that it's going to be worth $100 billion or more. I think what may be changing in a lot of the world is that some of these markets have been so undeveloped but are so big if you serve them successfully that the developing markets versions of these companies are going to be much more value than anybody expects. And if that is the case, then the valuations that are given to these companies of sales or attraction could potentially be justified as saying. Part of it is you're starting to see the footprints of success around the world where whether it's M&A, whether it's IPOs, or whether it's simply funding rounds or revenue, some of these companies, that draws a lot of attention. And then also creates a sort of spillover effect that the founders from those start other companies and on and on and on, start VC firm. Like it just creates like a whole ecosystem. Nothing attracts money like money being made somewhere, right? And so as you start to see some of these headline making news, it starts to have that impact, I think. And it seems to be happening. It doesn't seem to be theoretical. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Well, cool. Um, Let's talk about some themes, some ideas. What are you seeing out there? Feel free to talk about some portfolio companies, case studies, what looks good. You've been busy. So I'm not just drinking scotch by the fireplace in Scotland, which is what I'd be doing and (laughs) losing some golf balls and uh, hanging out and reading a bunch of old books. I feel like that's what I would, uh, hiking, a lot of hiking up there. It does sound nice. Yeah. What do you see? What's on your plate? One thing that might be worth talking about that I think we jumped away from, I initially talked about the reason that we've grown our team. And the reason for that is to try to get into more high quality deals to increase our chances of getting in on a 100x or 1000x or 10,000x outlier. But another part of this whole equation is, is that these partners that we have and, and partners that we'll continue to add. And, and by the way, if anyone listening to this is interested in, in joining our team, please reach out because we're, we're always looking for great people to work with us. We give everybody a lot of autonomy. And what that has to do with is that a lot of the best opportunities don't look like good opportunities in the beginning or tend to be very non-consensus. And many venture firms do make decisions by consensus and it leads them to be slow. And you know maybe the partner finds it, but then he has to convince all of his other partners to invest. And that's a time-consuming process. And because of that, they often miss out on deals or entrepreneurs don't even want to deal with them because it takes too long to get through them. By having a high degree of autonomy where each partner can make their own decisions but with input from the rest of the team, it's going to make it more likely that we get in on these deals that are initially unpopular, but are actually the outlier successes. And so as an example, one of our partners, Chris Murphy, did the seed round of Hopin, which is last valued at, I think, $7 billion. From the point that he got in on it, the company's now well over 100x return in only two years. And the crazy thing is, he showed it to a lot of people, including to my, one of our other partners, Tebow, at the time. And Tebow and many others thought it was a terrible deal and never invest. And yet that was the one that returned the 100x. And if we had been a team then, if Chris had brought it in and we had been like, uh, uh, not sure, and we didn't do it, we'd have missed that 100x. And in this game where the worst thing that can happen is you lose one extra money, but the best thing that can happen is you make a thousand times. It's much more important that everybody do the deals that they have conviction in. And it's okay to make mistakes, but it's much more like the bigger mistake is not doing those deals. And so anyway, because of that, because we want to keep doing these unpopular investments, 
we give everybody on our team high degree of autonomy to find companies that they believe in and do them. Have you learned anything on the, whether it's the WIFs or companies you invested in that went south over the handful of years? Any takeaways as to like, you're like, okay, well, that was something that was part of my process that clearly it was either not important or was a negative filter that I've removed. Just any general learnings from having done this over a hundred times now? It's such a tough question to answer. The crass thing to say is that they don't even matter and I don't even think about them. I say it's crass because the losers still suck in a lot of ways. It sucks because these founders poured their blood, sweat, and tears into it and worked on this thing for many years and they walked away with nothing. I feel terrible for all the founders that start companies and they don't work out. On top of that, it sucks to lose other people's money. We've had a few deals so far in the syndicate that didn't work out. And it felt really horrible to me to explain to the LPs that invested in those that, hey, sorry, you weren't getting your money back. Even though we make it clear that this is very risky and a lot of the investments lose money, there's still people that are surprised. And, and it, it still feels terrible on each deal when we lose their money. Let me restate this question because I don't mean as much like when things don't work out, like how do you deal with it? Because listeners... It's funny because every investor and also every operator says, I realize most startups fail, but are surprised when either theirs do or their money goes nowhere or goes to zero. Like that should be almost the norm. That's probably half to two thirds are probably going to be either zeros or just one X, meaning you get your money back or it's just not a material outcome. People are always surprised when it happens to them. But what I meant on this is like, I mean, well, you, you, I know you're asking, what were the lessons? It's a great question. I'm sorry. I, I had a roundabout way of, of getting things done. Okay. Yeah. Well, lessons you would change, meaning like for me, for example, there's a lot of areas that I think I was probably too close to or too smart for my own good, where I looked at history and I was like in asset management, for example, and said, this hasn't worked a hundred times. There's no way this could work, the 101th person doing it, but kind of ignored some of the shifting plates of what was going on and then missed it because just being dismissive of something in general. So I try to be a little more open-minded when it comes to that in particular. Anyway, take it any way you want. The truth is, like there are always things to analyze and look at and be learned from from the failures, but I really do think that a lot of this is so random. And there are both companies that I invested in where I look at and it didn't work out. And I look at the profile of the investor. I look back and I'm like, gosh, like it was a good bet. Like everything looked like it was good. And there are also a lot of ones where like I didn't do it and it was wildly successful. And I look at like there were so many red flags in it for some of these super successful ones that I missed. If I had done those ones and they failed, I'd have been like, oh, that it's obvious. I feel like you can't analyze your failures too much. Because there's these things that make the startups look like bad ideas or unproven or any of this stuff. It's also random. And they all pivot too. So like oftentimes, there'll be a great founder with a bad idea. And if you mix it on the bad idea, then they pivot. If, oh, I missed Instagram because of this. The founder of Instagram was a good friend. I heard he was trying to raise a little bit of money. The app was called Bourbon at the time. And I downloaded it. I was like, this is stupid. Like, I don't get it. Didn't do it. And then he pivoted. And it was Instagram. And he was wildly successful. Yeah. The pivots you can't really control people make the argument that it's the founder or whatever. But like looking back on this, there's obviously the survivor bias of the ones that worked or didn't. And it's hard to kind of correlate the process and outcome in many cases, I think. One way that I think smooths over a lot of this is what we mentioned in the very beginning, which is breadth, the number of 
coin flips or turns the die, I think helps this process. And it also removes a little of the anxiety of like the feeling of having to be right. One of my old favorite investing books is called Being Right or Making Money. And so the trend follower in me, those guys have pretty low batting average, but the big winners, and it's pretty similar methodology, but a lot of people really struggle with that concept of they want a high batting average, which I feel like isn't, isn't the right place to be if you're in startup investing. That is a very interesting topic. Actually, there are two different things that I want to, to say on this general topic. So one is, is the batting average thing. The other thing is I remembered another example of the randomness of all this. So earlier this year, we made two investments in instant grocery delivery companies. So kind of Instacart 2.0, it's these companies that deliver your groceries in 15 minutes or less. One of them was based in Spain and one of them was based in India. And they were both around the same stage, similar valuations. We did both. Initially, they were both on extraordinary trajectories, growing super fast. The one in Spain hit just a random thing where they signed a term sheet with a Series A VC. The VC bogged them down in due diligence and at the 11th hour pulled out and the company was out of money and they went bust. Luckily, we were actually able to get our money back, but it was a very unsuccessful outcome. Meanwhile, the one in India is just marked up 10x. Six months, two companies, very similar. One's effectively zero or one, one's a 10x. Listeners, you got to be like Eli Manning. You throw a pick, you like forget it. You have like immediate amnesia. Get back out there, throw another pick, amnesia, go out and throw four touchdowns. Like that's the key to this is like the way I think about it is like you're putting these in like a lockbox and you're going to open the lockbox one day, each investment, and it's either going to be nothing there or it's going to be worth but it's like you can't do anything about it in the meantime anyway so it's like why even have anxiety about it which is so much of a feature of in my opinion the angel investing asset class is it removes the public stock anxiety where you just look at these tickers all day and going up and down and causing you to have emotional attachment about having to make a decision or not these startups the good news is you can't do anything about it so there's no <laughs> no reason to worry i think it's right on the other thing that I wanted to address is what you're talking about with the batting average or slugging percentage. And this is a very tricky thing in investing where a lot of people focus, at least with an angel investing, a lot of people focus on having a high batting average. And they think, gosh, if, if I lose money less often and I hit singles, doubles, triples on a relatively frequent basis, then I must be a great investor. And what the data shows, at least the data that I've seen, a lot of other leaders in the space that I respect have pointed to is that the best VCs actually have a lower batting average, but a high slugging percentage. And so what this has been termed the Babe Ruth effect. And for those unfamiliar, Babe Ruth had both the record for most home runs at the time and also the record for most strikeouts. And because he was always swinging for the fences on every one, he hit both records simultaneously. And it's very similar in startup investing. That's really interesting. I tell my friends who are kind of getting started in angel investing, I say, look, you're going to see a lot of deals that you'll look at them and be like, wow, this is actually like a pretty high conviction five or 10x. And that's fine. Like if you want to exist in that sort of series A or B world where the companies have a lot more established revenue and traction, it's a very clear picture. There's probably a lower chance of going out of business. Like you can do that. Like that's fine. That's just probably not as much this where if you're down the road at series A, B, you'll probably have a higher batting average, but the slugging percentage will likely be less. That's my guess. It's right on. Well, cool. Let's talk to me about a couple other names. Feel free to give a shout out or a, a case study in any of these recent deals you've been doing. Who's doing some cool shit or who's doing some stuff that you're particularly excited, optimistic about? 
you know, I love all my children equally. Mm, yeah, <laughs> That's the tricky thing about this. But let me ask, are there any, I know you're in a ton of investments on AngelList, so it's probably hard to parse which are with, with us, which are elsewhere. But are there any that you remember investing in with us that you're particularly excited about? Maybe we could talk about those. So there's like a whole spectrum. And I like yours, again, this has already been mentioned, but I have a particular attraction to off the beaten path names and ideas. So I see your deal memo and it's talking about Latin America or Pakistan. I immediately perk up. But there's some that recently, well, there's a couple we can't mention because they haven't closed yet, probably. But you mentioned Jeeves already. There's one that's doing some cool that I don't know that they've had their moment yet. That's early, probably. But it's a new idea to me. And it's vaguely in our world, which is SMBX. Oh, yeah. That's a cool one to talk about. You want to tell listeners what they do? Yeah, happy to share. The SMBX is a small business bond marketplace. What that means is, so small and medium businesses, traditionally, when they want to borrow money, they go to a bank and the bank goes through a whole underwriting process and decides to issue the company a loan. This company, SMBX, is trying to take that business and basically crowdsource the loan. So the company still does the due diligence and underwriting work that the bank would do. But rather than having their own base of capital, that would be the bank's capital. In this case, they open it up to the crowd to invest in these loans. And so you can lend money to these SBA level, which is the highest quality and tier of small business lending. It's kind of the safest type of business to lend to the SBA level. Individuals can invest in these businesses for as little as, I think, 10 or $100 and earn 6 to 8% interest on them. And the businesses pay back these loans over a period of time. And it's really neat because in many cases, a lot of the customers of these businesses can, through the SMBX, lend their local business money and earn interest on it and thereby support their business, feel like an investor in it. And it's really pretty cool. And it has a lot of parallels to AngelList, where AngelList is, in a way, they're partially displacing the VCs by opening up uh, angel investing in startups to the crowd, where people can follow a lead, invest money through a lead in small amounts into a startup have a stake in it. And in the same way, the SMBX is doing effectively syndicates for lending money to small businesses. Yeah. I don't know that I've seen something like that before. It's a pretty cool, and they're just kind of now just getting their product out and getting the word out. Often when you're in sort of a new offering, it takes a while to educate the potential user base. So listeners, check it out. It's a fun one. No, you're right. It's very early. I mean, they have traction. They've issued a lot of loans. They've had zero defaults. They've moved a lot of money and they're doing great. I think they've well proven it out. And they, as you kind of alluded to, they're now at the stage where they're figuring out how they really, really grow. It's a tricky situation where a lot of startups out there are in kind of this grow at all cost mode where they just try to get as many customers and grow as quickly as possible. And it's a little bit dangerous in the case of SMBX, where if they try to grow too fast, they might start doing lower quality loans and lose money and therefore serve all their investors poorly. And so They've deliberately taken a very slow and steady approach where they're very cautious, always trying to put forward high quality investments. But I think it's come at the cost of not being able to grow as quickly as other startups have. But even so, I think it's probably been the right choice for them. You guys have recently been doing a handful in Africa as well. That's an area we've been kind of doing a whole series about on the podcast. What's the attraction there? You've seen a lot of opportunity. Is it a particular region and any names in particular that you think are worth mentioning? 
Yeah. I mean, once again, there are just a lot of really smart people that are building companies in Africa. And obviously, a lot of people live in Africa who want the same products and services that we enjoy in the US or Europe. So one company that we've been invested in for a while that's really hitting their stride is Yesir. It started as kind of an Uber for North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. So they really took off with that business. And they've now expanded across a lot of other products and services as well. So they're now what they're calling a super app where they both still provide the rides. They also do food delivery. They provide a degree of financial services. I think they do telemedicine and pharmaceutical delivery now. And so there are a lot of things. And, And I believe that in the countries where they operate, so they've expanded, they started to expand beyond just that North Africa into more of Francophone Africa or French speaking Africa. And they've just done really great. They're growing super fast. I think they're the biggest tech company in this whole region. Out of the 300-odd investments I've done, it's less than 10%. It's probably less than 5 And this is a little anti-consensus, I think, with a lot of the way traditional people invest or recommend. I usually don't do follow-on investments unless, to me, it's like such a clear, obvious thing to not invest. We actually talked about this on this webinar the other day. I said, listeners... This is the wrong term to be using for this, but in public market investing, insider trading is illegal. In private investing, it's like a huge benefit. Like insider trading is the wrong way to describe it. Just like the ability to talk to the CEO, have information, and be able to talk to other companies about it because you're not trading the stocks on exchange, yada, yada. It's a huge benefit. But being able to see, once you start to read enough of these deal flows, starting to see the pattern recognition, but then seeing the companies where they have some serious traction. Now, the problem with that, a lot of times it's accompanied by massive valuation increases. And so if something is up 10x, all of a sudden your position size went from 1x to 10, it's hard to follow on in a size that's meaningful. But in some cases, you don't necessarily have the valuation as much with the traction. Anyway, just here was one of the 10 or 20 companies I've ever done multiple investments in. And if I recall, and you could correct me, it feels like in the beginning, like it wasn't a totally hairless deal. Like in a lot of seed investment, pre-seed investment certainly aren't. You look at them, you're like, well, there's these two or three things, or they haven't had any traction, or they haven't done this, or well, there's this that seems to be a challenge. But once they unlock those, then you have what you had here, which is obviously a pretty big upside. It definitely had hair on it as far as deals go. But again, it was a case where really impressive founder CEO with prior startup experience who he was a Stanford PhD, went back to his home country of Algeria to go do this. So he, he had kind of enough in his background where it was like, hmm, this guy probably knows what he's doing and is likely to be successful. But of course, it felt scary because the company's headquartered in Algeria. And in fact, I don't know if it still is, but at the time, it was the only company within Algeria to raise money from outside of Algeria, the only one. I think that's a mark of how scary most people perceive that business climate. And of course, you know, there are other things as well. But once again, it was a case where we're making this investment as part of a big portfolio. If it works, it could be huge. If it doesn't, hey, we have a portfolio. And I feel very fortunate that this one has worked and it's doing great and growing really fast. Somewhere they have just like this photo. They're like the only company to raise money outside of Algeria. And it's just a picture of you. Like it says a picture of Peter in the background. It's like, here's the investor that started the entire VC industry in Algeria. I should actually make it clear that I don't get the credit for it. So it was actually my partner, Thibaut, who was the first one to basically lead their first round. 
he was the first investor outside of Algeria to do it. It turns out Thibaut's family is actually from Algeria. He had some connections to it. He did it himself, pulled together a bunch of money. And it was actually the first deal that he brought over to me in Unpopular. And then we put in more money together and it's done great. And that was the start of our relationship. And we did more deals together after that. Well, I'm just glad you verified that his name is pronounced Thibaut because every time I see his name, how do you say his last name? I think it's Reichel. Okay, Thibaut, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Because every time I see it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't even. There's a lot of vowels and consonants and weird places on that one. <laughs> yeah. That's coming from someone whose name is mispronounced every single morning at my coffee shop. So I can relate. Investors love hearing this. What have been some of the biggest winners? Is there any that have consummated and are Dunsky? Are most of them, I assume, kind of in the TBD stage where they've been marked up or having amazing success, but not any sort of outcome yet? It's been a short journey, but what do you got for us? So we do have one exit that's done pretty well. It's a company called Prodigy. It was software for car dealers. And pretty shortly after we invested, they got acquired by a public company called Upstart. We got a markup into Upstart shares and Upstart stock has done really well in a month. And so I haven't looked lately, but I think it's like a five or six X outcome on that. That's a good feeling. Yeah, it's nice. The thing I should share with this though, is that it's nice. It's nice to return money quickly, but in general, the mega winners don't come out so early. And in fact, it's often kind of disappointing when a great company exits too early. Obviously, in the case of Prodigy getting acquired by Upstart, it was probably the right thing for the founder and the team. And obviously, that was the right decision for them at the time. But for us, it's often actually a little bit disappointing when the companies exit too early, even if it's a positive outcome. I'm just a big believer in the compound interest of startups over a long period of time, where if you can just get in on a startup that can grow in value by 2x a year, and you expect to hold it for 10 years, 2x a year for 10 years in a row is 1,024x. And so if you believe in that compound interest or the compound growth of growing knowledge and traction and reinvesting all that money and over a long period of time, it's over a period of 10 years or longer that you really get those mega winners. And so as much as possible, we want to hold our best companies as long as we can. Yeah. Again, that's like a hard thing to rewire your brain about. I think all of us, if we saw stock double over the course of a year, would be absolutely ecstatic or even go up 10% a year for a long time. I mean, the challenge of trying to put that in context of how a, a company fits into this sort of angel space is it's hard to repeat how important that is to have the big outliers. It totally is. Taxes matter too. I don't know if that'll be interesting to your listeners, but taxes are a huge consideration. It will be, and it'll be more interesting to see what the politicians do with the QSBS. Did that get taken out of the last one? Where do we stand with that? Any idea? I haven't heard the latest on it, to be honest. I think it has had a sneaky big impact on startup investing. I don't know that for certain, but it feels like it has. What else? Did you look to the horizon? What are you thinking about? Any ideas that you would love to fund that you just haven't found the right one? Anything else on your brain where you're just kind of thinking about something we didn't talk about? Yeah. Well, one thing that's probably worth talking about that you alluded to is valuations in general. I mean, I think we talked about it earlier in the context of US valuations versus Latin American valuations. But one thing that's been very front and center in the whole startup investing space globally is that valuations have really risen lately across the board. Both pre-seed and seed stage valuations are much higher than they've ever been. And then later stage valuations as well are eye-poppingly high. And a big question that I've been debating and my team and I have been talking about is, is this the new normal or are we going to have a big reset? I know that 
in the 90s as well during the dot-com boom and bust. Startup valuations in 1998 and 1999 were unprecedentedly high then as well. And obviously, we know what happened after that. And in fact, startups couldn't even get funded after that. And we've had a really hard time debating, do we lean into these higher valuations that are out there today? Or are we going to be, are they going to come back to bite us later? And are we going to have a valuation reset? Is there going to be a bear market, a broad bear market across all asset classes? And or is there going to be a bear market in startups and venture capital? And we don't know, but it does feel very frothy and heated and the valuations are high and the rounds are competitive. And my personal belief is that at some point in the next two or three years, there's got to finally be a reset of some kind. I just don't know how this continues. Fred Wilson wrote about this recently. Fred Wilson is a very famous VC at Union Square Ventures. And he, a few days ago, he wrote a post about how high valuations are and how he thinks it's insanity. And he thinks that the people that are investing at the valuations these days aren't going to make money and something has to break. We'll see what happens. Well, I mean, like a good example of the Fred piece we'll link to in the show notes is that let's say you invest in a company at a starting point of 100 million versus 10, and just the differences on how that plays out and it's material. The price paid affects some of these big outcomes. And Fred was talking about, and I could get this wrong, but he was like looking at the public outcomes where it's 10 billion or 100 billion, like how many of these 100 billion companies have I had? He's like, we're one of the most successful angel investors ever. And if I look at a lot of probably the on paper, but also realize returns of the investments I've done, it definitely skews smaller. I think the median for me is 15 million, but some of the best performers, even during this environment, the last few years, they hearkened to what you're talking about. They were kind of unpopular and they could be had for 8 million sort of valuation. One of my favorites was at a two, which you never see anymore. Was that yummy by chance? No, well, yes, yummy is another one. That one also had some hair on it. There's been a few of those almost like instant rocket ships. Yummy's there. No, the one I was talking about was also not a US company. Neither is Yummy. Yummy's Venezuela, right? But was a French smoothie, a French, I guess it's European. I don't know if it's French or Portuguese called Kinko. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. You did that at two. That's incredible. I think it was two. That was one of my first ones. Maybe it was three. Sorry, somewhere down there. Anyway, Yummy is another interesting story that has seen some explosive success kind of in that super app category, right? Yeah, it is it is super app for Venezuela. And now they've expanded beyond there to more of Latin America. And it's really been on fire. We actually saw it and considered it at a two, two and a half million dollar valuation. And we ended up not getting comfortable with Venezuela. And another syndicate lead, Ali Jamal, who we really respect, he's a great guy came in and picked it up. And man, he has done super well with it. He did this investment at two, two and a half. I think they're now raising another round at 150 something million dollar valuation, or maybe even higher. Fortunately, we got in with our fund a little bit in a later round, uh, I got a $7 million valuation. So we still got it, but gosh, a huge respect to Ali. And we feel like we really missed out for not doing it on the two something million dollar valuation. Yeah. Listeners, if you want to follow Ali's on First Check Ventures, and one of the ideas that I think is thoughtful, you don't have to always think in binary terms. So the example I give is, let's say you have a set unit size and listeners, that could be 1,000, be 10,000, be 100,000, whatever your money target is. But let's make it easy. Let's say it's 5,000 per investment. To have a written investing plan, say, look, if I'm over the moon, this is the best idea I've ever seen, I'll do 10,000. 2X your unit size or maybe 20. 
doesn't matter what your parameters are, but to think about it ahead of time. But there's also an opportunity that if you see a deal that you're like uncertain about, but would like to invest later, you're like, look, if this does work out, I don't want to be left out. So like, if this doesn't work out zero, whatever. But if it does work out, I see a clear path to where this could be a monster success. This harkens back to the old days of public stock investors that would buy one share so that you get the annual reports and you're forced to track it. You get the updates. So Yummy was also one of these only few companies I'd ever done multiple investments in, but you get the updates, you see the progress and you're like, oh, this seems like it might have a chance. This seems like it's going in the right direction. So I think that way you also don't have to think in like binary terms, pull your hair out of, oh, I missed it. Like what a stupid idea. Like, hey, just do a half unit or do a one quarter unit so you can follow along. And that way you're at least a part of the story. It's really wise. Uh, We'll see. One of the things you guys did, which I thought was actually pretty interesting, you've had one of the better performing fund syndicates, whatever, however you want to call it, over the past handful of years, which is interesting because going back to the earlier part of the discussion, you've done a number of investments. And when I would think about like what might have to push you into that universe, you would almost think that like it's someone got lucky with like 10 investments. They hit one of those out of the park. And it's like almost like a survivor bias, but yours, tell us how you kind of compare about, obviously, disclosures out the wazoo listeners. This is not Gips audited investment advice, but more of just like a general discussion. <laughs> Talk to us about like how you think about that. Yeah. One of the big complaints from LPs or investors on Angelus for a long time is that there's an incentive mismatch between the syndicate leads and the people investing behind them. And the mismatch is that these leads earn what's called deal-by-deal carry. They earn a share of the profits on each individual deal they syndicate. And because of this, the leads are incentivized to do as many deals as they can. And even if their overall performance is terrible, if they just get one that does pretty well and exits for a decent multiple, they're going to make money off of that, the profits that are spread on that, even if in aggregate they lost money for everybody. So there's been a perception among a lot of people both investors on Angelus and off that backing these syndicates leads is a bad deal because they're going to do tons of shit deals and they're going to make money off of us investors at our expense. Like we're going to lose money, but the leads are going to do great. And what I really wanted to do in building our syndicate or firm was prove that wrong. Maybe that is the case with a lot of syndicate leads. Maybe the average lead on Angelus does lose money, but we wanted to one, make sure we make money, make sure we're not doing tons of bad deals just for that optionality, just for that chance of making a profit on it. And we want to really serve our investors and make money for them. And so from the very first year, actually that I operated this, we started putting out a report of our performance. And, and so we initially did it yearly. Now we do it quarterly. But we report on our performance of the whole portfolio every quarter. And we show, look, on balance, at least so far, we're making money for our investors on paper. In aggregate, the returns look good so far. And I don't know if every quarter we will always be in the green. But we want to be transparent about it. We want to show that we're trying to do it right by our investors and make everybody money. And we've been fortunate. Maybe it's the bull market. Maybe we're not terrible at what we do. But the returns that we've been producing have been very good. Our 2019 portfolio in aggregate is currently marked at two and a half times the amount invested. So a gain of 150%. And I guess it's been about two years. Our 2020 portfolio, we've been fortunate it's doing even better. It's marked at 2.8, 2.8 or 2.9 times the money invested. Our 2021 portfolio, which isn't even over yet, you know, we're still investing from this year, but because of the markups we've had, 
that portfolio is already valued at 1.2 to 1.3 times the money, depending on how you measure it. So we've been very fortunate that we have good numbers to show, but it's also been part of us trying to be thoughtful about being transparent about our numbers and trying to do right by our investors and make money for them in aggregate. Last time you were on the podcast, it was fun because you were like talking about how this syndicate distributed model could become the next Sequoia. Sequoia is now doing some odd things where they've created sort of an evergreen fund. You have the advance of Tiger. I don't even know how what to call them. Are they trying to become like the vanguard of private equity? It almost feels like where they just are trying to index the entire space. Any other thoughts on the general kind of VC ecosystem today? You still have the belief from last time that the next Sequoia is coming from this sort of world, the syndicate model, and any other thoughts? We'll see. You hit on a lot of things. So one, there's a lot of change happening in the big establishment world, and that's super interesting. Two, yes, there's a lot of very interesting things happening with syndicates. And I did postulate then that maybe the next Sequoia will be a syndicate. That might still be the case. I mean, a lot of these syndicates needs are fantastic, super smart, getting into great investments, moving a lot of money. We're trying the best we can, but man, the competition is fierce out there. Maybe a syndicate will evolve to be the next Sequoia. But I think one thing that nobody's talking about is what if AngelList is the next Sequoia as a whole? And what I mean by that is that AngelList is effectively a venture firm on itself where all the partners are running these individual operations underneath this umbrella that is AngelList. And they, you know, they brand them in their own ways. Some of them are funds, some of them are syndicates. They're all named in different things. But in a way, AngelList has all these LPs that invest in the net. It flows through and they invest through AngelList into all these entities. And each of those entities is acting like a partner within this bigger firm. And if you measure it in this way, I mean, if you look at AngelList as a venture firm in itself, I think I saw that they're now moving over a billion dollars a year into companies. And it's probably even higher now that this was months ago. If they're moving over a billion dollars a year into startups, they're one of the biggest venture firms. I think that makes them in the top 10, definitely top 20, maybe top 10 venture firms, which is pretty remarkable. So maybe in a way, AngelList as a whole is the next Sequoia. And time will tell if maybe one of these syndicates, maybe us, although the competition is fierce. There are a lot of things worth talking about. I could talk about Sequoia. I could talk about Tiger. I, I know I shared a lot about AngelList. Any questions or comments on that? Whatever is clever, whatever's on your brain, fire away. Well, so certainly these mega funds, both Sequoia and Tiger and Andreessen, keep getting bigger and bigger, but they keep producing good returns. They're moving large amounts of money and they're making money. So, so far, that's clearly working. I think that Sequoia's new model is interesting. It seems like there's some benefits to it. I don't fully understand all the implications of it, but I think it's interesting. I think that Tiger has been playing, and some of the other hedge funds are playing a very interesting role in this whole game. We talked earlier about this idea of trying to do just every credible deal at our level at the super early stage in seed. And I think that Tiger has actually been kind of doing that same thing with these later stage and established and mature companies. And they've been doing great at it. It's within this idea that the big winners and startups and venture are so massively big. The most important thing is just to get in on one of those mega winners. And the best way to do that is to effectively index. And I think what Tiger has been doing is smart. They're basically trying to get in on every good company. They do do due diligence. They do a lot before they meet the company so that they can make quick decisions. But they're being much less selective than the traditional venture firms were. Traditionally, most venture firms were very selective. They'd create a concentrated portfolio. They'd meet with 100 companies for everyone they would invest in or sometimes even more. And Tiger's just taken kind of a fast and loose approach, building effectively an index fund of venture or the best venture-backed companies. And that works. 
But because of how they're doing it, it's really disrupting all the other players in the space. The other players in the space haven't historically moved as fast as Tiger does or haven't been able to invest with as little due diligence or at least time taken from the company. And so I do think that there's a big shift underway where maybe all of venture is going to move towards more of an indexing approach. I don't know. We'll see it in a couple more years. But I do think that what Tiger has done and then what also we and others have done at the early stage, we're kind of making all of venture a little bit more fast and loose and valuations are a little higher, but it all still works because when we have these large portfolios, I think it is changing the nature of how the venture capital game is played. I don't know if that makes sense. I realize that Blab fell over the place. <laughs> it does. No, I think it's well said. I think you're spot on. We'll include the, uh, there was a good Tiger summary article that came out last week or two, put it in the show notes. As we start to wind down, man, I'm going to see Santa tonight. I'm sure it's already late wherever you are. Is it like midnight? What time is it there? It's uh, 10.30 here. Oh, not so bad. Should have done this over uh, Scotch in Scotchland. <laughs> What's the funding scene elsewhere in Europe? Does it have the culture? Are you meeting people that it feels on the angel side as excited and money making waves around? Is it six months a year behind? Is it what? The truth is I'm not very tapped into the ecosystem here because of COVID and just everything. I do everything online. So I'm not going to events or meet people in person. Well, the Wi-Fi is good in Scotland. I'll give you that wherever you are. <laughs> it is working. Starlink with Elon Musk can go anywhere. Yeah, we're really looking forward to that. I think that'll be a new upgrade to being able to live anywhere or doing the digital nomad thing or taking it a step further, being able to just be on a boat in the middle of the ocean and still be connected to everybody. It's going to be very exciting when that is full and mainstream. Yeah, all I want to say, Meb, is thank you so much for having me. And I always enjoy talking with you. Loved it last time, loved it this time. And it's really an honor to be here. And thank you so much for both having me and being a supporter in the syndicate. And yeah, man, keep hitting the ball out of the park. <laughs> no pressure. Where do people go? They want to sign up for your syndicate, go to AngelList on Popular Ventures. When they find your reading, you put out um, nice reports on the fund and what you guys are doing. Uh, where are the best places? Unpopular.vc. That's it. Just type it in and you'll find us. Easy. Peter and team, thanks for joining us today. Man, thank you so much. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.